Well, welcome to the Denton's Toronto Business Insights Podcast. I'm Blair McCready, the managing partner of Denton's Toronto. And on this podcast, we discuss topics and trends to help general counsel and business leaders grow, protect, operate, and finance their businesses in Toronto and beyond. So after the pandemic hit, there was a significant focus on material adverse effect clauses or MAEs. Now, an MAE is intended to give a buyer the option to walk away from a deal if the target suffers a significant setback in its financial condition or operations. And because many parties to transactions sought to trigger these clauses during the pandemic, the application and practical use of MAEs came under scrutiny by M&A lawyers and litigators alike. So how these clauses should be interpreted has undergone much change recently, and though there is now some emerging clarity on how and when such a clause can be triggered. So that's why I'm pleased to be joined today by my Toronto M&A colleagues, Alex Farkas and Tom Redekop, along with my litigation partner, Chloe Snyder, to discuss some of the key considerations for M&A transaction agreements and these MAEs moving forward. So let's jump right in. So Alex, let me start with you. Can you tell us why it's important for in-house counsel and business leaders to carefully consider these MAE clauses when drafting purchase agreements? Thanks, Blair. Um, so MAE clauses um, are a common concept in most purchase agreements. And at its core, an MAE is a, typically an event, occurrence, or development that is reasonably expected to have a material adverse effect on the financial condition or business of a company. Um, so really what that means is um, for an MAE event to occur, um, it would have to result in a business um, losing a large part portion of its value for an extended period of time. Think about um, you know, a scenario where um, a business that um, is solely dependent uh, for a key technology that drives the majority of its revenue on a particular patent. Uh, and let's say a patent infringement claim comes up and all of a sudden um, a court rules that this business can no longer use that patent. It immediately loses the ability to sell that core technology and generate the majority of its revenue. And let's say it loses two thirds of its business as a result of that and has to shut, shut down operations for many months up, you know, or potentially years. Um, that's the kind of scale of uh, impact that you would ordinarily have to think about when you think about a, an MAE. So it's not just something that is, you know, adverse to the business. It has to be so adverse and so material that it really, you know, in, in a transactional context nullifies the business that the buyer has struck with a seller. And an MAE really um, has been held to be a very high bar. It's really difficult to establish absent some fairly drastic changes that you know, can't have said to be occurred in the ordinary course. And it is quite typical and lawyers, M&A practitioners spend a lot of time um, crafting these clauses and uh, purchase agreements, but there will be a definition of an MAE um, as my colleague Chloe will discuss 
um, in more detail um, a bit later on. And over time, that definition has evolved to include a number of carve-outs. Um, and these would be occurrences or types of occurrences that are often uh, set not to result in an MAE being met. You know, examples of that may be natural disasters or, or war, things that are sort of outside of the control of the parties. And in, you know, in recent years, um, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic made it on that list. Although I would say more recently, since we're now two plus years into the pandemic and most businesses have adjusted to, for the most part, you often see that um, no longer being a carve-up, but that's a discussion for a different day. So Alex, how often do courts find that a target has had a material adverse event? Um, and, you know, MAE disputes historically have not been very common. Um, there's a, you know, there, there were a handful of cases in Delaware and, and you know, really only a handful of instances where um, uh, somebody was able to establish that uh, an MAE event has, has occurred and and Tom can elaborate a little bit more on that. That's an interesting point, Alex. Has there been much guidance from the courts on this issue? Um, in Canada, we haven't seen um, a significant number of decisions. However, in, in, in recent years and even in the, in the last year or so, we have seen some guidance from the courts, um, in particular with how the courts think about a buyer's ability to walk away from a deal. Um, on the basis that the target business that they were intending to acquire has suffered an MAE. Um, and one particular item of note that has come out of recent Canadian case law is um, the interplay between the definition of an MAE and, and interim operating covenants. And so to step back a little bit, um, interim operating covenants are the types of covenants um, that govern a target's operation during the period from signing to closing. You often in, in our transactions have um, a separate sign and close, you know, the parties agree, sign a definitive agreement to purchase a business, and then there's usually some, some closing conditions such as regulatory approvals um, that require some period of time after signing to be met, and then the closing occurs once those conditions are met. During that period of time, the parties usually agree to a set of governing rules where the buyer has some degree of input in the target's operations and the target basically commits to continue to operate in the ordinary course of business consistent with past practice. This is, of course, to preserve, um, you know, the whole idea of the buyer at the end of the day uh, acquiring what it bargained for. And so you will often see a number of these covenants um, that create restrictions on what a target can do uh, without uh, a buyer's input. And, you know, historically, um, you know, practitioners in courts looked at the MAE definition and then the interim covenants um, as generally distinct provisions that didn't have direct overlap unless, you know, a particular covenant was set to be qualified by reference to MAE. And my colleague, Chloe, will highlight um, that there's been some recent um, uh, there's been a recent court decision that has muddled the waters a little bit and it, it sort of imported the risk allocation concepts from the MAE definition into how um, ordinary course uh, covenants should be interpreted. And this is a bit of a departure from prior case law and in particular Delaware case law, as my colleague Tom will discuss in more detail. 
All right, Alex, thanks for that detailed overview. Now, COVID-19 was obviously a, a once in a century event. And so it's unlikely that parties sort of contemplated prior to 2020 that a global pandemic could sort of trigger their right to sort of terminate an agreement or relieve a party of performing its obligations under an MAE. Um, and Alex, you also sort of commented that in other situations, parties relied on sort of those ordinary course clauses or interim operating covenants as a way to obtain relief during the pandemic. So, I mean, Chloe, you've litigated in this space. So how have Canadian courts responded to the use of MAE and ordinary course clauses in the context of disputes that arose in the pandemic? As, as Alex alluded to, there have been a couple of relatively recent decisions since the start of the pandemic, um, the decisions being in 2020 and 2021 that address MAE clauses and the interplay or, or the courts finding that there's an interplay with the ordinary course covenants. Generally speaking, these cases set a high bar for buyers to establish that they have a right to walk away from a transaction, which I, I think, you know, although was found in the context of pandemic decisions, I, I do think has broader implications. And the courts looked at both the MAE clauses and the ordinary course covenants in those agreements and, and commented that while the MAE clause addresses events that occur between signing and closing, the interim covenants, the ordinary course covenants, uh, address the manner in which the seller has to operate the business during the interim period. So as Alex were saying, was saying, these are really different issues, but I think the court may have been looking at the fact that these were happening, happening during the same um, interim period, and that that may be why they they started to look at these as perhaps dealing with similar issues. And so, unlike American case law that Tom will get into, the courts looked at these agreements as a whole to try to understand and adjudicate the allocation of risk between the parties using the the MAE clause to inform the interpretation of the ordinary course covenant and what was required of the seller during that period. Now, the, the courts in these cases referred to general contractual principles um, dealing with reading the contract as a whole and giving the words used their ordinary and grammatical meaning. So, so you know, relying on these basic principles of contractual interpretation that you have to look at the whole agreement. And that too, I think, informed the analysis. And so what the courts found was that the meaning to be given to the ordinary course covenants and whether or not the, the seller had breached the, those clauses in, in these cases in responding to the pandemic, that this analysis and meaning was informed by the allocation of risk in the MAE clause. So whereas Alex was saying that typically these had been seen as really distinct issues and distinct allocations of risk, the courts in these recent cases have found that they are, are really meant to inform one another. And that um, where there was an MAE carve out that allocated the risk of 
uh, in, in these cases, outbreaks of illness to the purchaser, that that then informed what the seller was able to do uh, in responding to the pandemic. And, you know, Blair, you were mentioning earlier that, you know, the we're two years behind us in the pandemic. And, and, you know, I think most of us are hoping that this is all over, but I think that, that these cases are still relevant, that there's still, there's always uncertainty. You know, we've seen in today's world, whether it's supply chain issues or environmental issues or, or conflict, that there are, are a number of issues that can always arise that might require reliance on an, on an MAE clause, or to use Alex's example, uh, you know, a patent issue could result in, in one of these issues arising. So knowing that the Canadian courts at least will use the MAE clause to inform the ordinary course, uh, the, their interpretation of the ordinary course of business covenant is important both for the seller in understanding the scope of what they can do or not do in response to an adverse event, as well as to the purchaser knowing what risk they're actually taking on in an agreement. And, and for the ordinary course clause to have been breached, the seller's action really needs to have significantly changed the nature of the business or had a long lasting impact that would affect the buyer in operating the business. Um, so I think that answers the question about how, how our courts have gone about interpreting these clauses. Okay, so Tom, let's let's get you in here because you, you advise on US law um, as part of your cross-border M&A practice. So can you shed some light on the contrast between what is happening in the US versus what is happening in Canada? And, and based on what you're seeing in the U.S., what impact do you think that's going to have on the Canadian M&A market? Sure, happy to, Blair. Um, and I'll try to be brief with this because I think uh, both Alex and Chloe have done an excellent job uh, summarizing the state of M&A MAE provisions, and they're, they're quite similar in the U.S. But let me just take a step back briefly. Uh, to begin with, Delaware has also set a very high bar for buyers uh, the court interprets an MAE clause as protecting a buyer against unknown events that substantially threaten or affects the target's overall earnings potential in a durationally significant manner. And by durationally significant, uh, what I mean is something that's measured in years, not merely months. That's very important to keep in mind when we think about the recent court cases that Chloe was talking about, because Delaware, when it looks at an MAE, is really focused on value and durationally significant value. In the cases that Chloe talked about, value was certainly um, an issue in those cases, it sounds like, but also they were focusing on those interim covenants, which I think many uh, non-Canadian practitioners see as separate and distinct. And in fact, Delaware has also interpreted an MAE clause as being separate and distinct from those ordinary covenants in the acquisition agreement. I think the theory is that if someone wanted to modify those ordinary course covenants in the acquisition agreement, they could do so very easily. They could negotiate language that might say the target business has to operate in the ordinary course of business, except as may be reasonably necessary to respond to global events such as COVID-19 or other things like that. And yet we haven't seen a whole lot of exceptions that way. And I think uh, the US courts, especially the Delaware court would say the, the target and the buyer have bargained for one risk allocation with respect to 
the value of the business and a completely separate risk allocation with respect to the ordinary operations of the business prior to closing. I'll just pause there just to see if, if Alex or Chloe might have a, a different interpretation uh, uh, as to how I'm reading it. I think you've got that right. And then going forward, I think there's a few things that we should be thinking about. Um, first, if you're a U.S. buyer and you're doing business in Canada, you should be very mindful of the recent case law in Canada, because what you're used to in the States uh, is not necessarily the same game you're going to be playing in Canada. So you might want to be very proactive about adding language to your acquisition agreement that specifically says the MAE provision is not meant to inform the construction of the ordinary course provision. Vice versa, if you're a Canadian buyer and you happen to be doing acquisition in the US and it's governed by US law, you really should not be assuming that the uh, new state of play in Canada is gonna to apply to your acquisition agreement. And if you want your ordinary course covenants to be modified by various provisions of the MAE clause, you should state as much in your acquisition agreement. Okay, so if, if an organization is looking to trigger its right under one of these MAE clauses, what are some of the things that in-house counsel or business leaders should consider? So, so Chloe, let me throw this one to you. What, what, what can organizations do to strengthen their legal position or mitigate risk when exercising an MAE clause? From my perspective, you know, I, I work backwards from litigation. And so I think about what the record will look like if there were to be a dispute and what documents would be producible. And so I think the process by which an organization determines if they have a right to terminate is really important because any documents about that decision are likely, if they're not privileged, going to be produced in litigation and I think can inform a court's view on really what was going on and you know judges are human and I think we'll look at, at what an organization was trying to accomplish in in those documents where that assessment is being made as to whether or not to terminate an agreement because a seller has breached an ordinary course covenant and so I think it's really important to make sure that legal counsel is involved to the extent that there are, are issues on which legal advice can be sought um, and then privilege used to protect those discussions. I think that that's you know, something that the business will want to have or should have in mind really as soon as it's starting to consider this before it's even determined that it can terminate. Um, that process is one that should involve a lawyer, I think, from the outset. Um, and, and the only other comment I would make is just understanding what the, the damages or what relief might be sought by the seller is also important to keep in mind um, in the cases that we've seen. The courts have either awarded specific performance, um, requiring you know the transaction to to proceed, or have required that damages be paid on the basis of of lost synergies that would have been um, accomplished through the transaction, resulting in in quite high damages award. So I think understanding what the various scenarios might look like uh, is important as part of that process as well. 
Well, I mean, thanks, Chloe, for for sharing that from a, from a litigation perspective. But um, you know, obviously, there are things that that organizations can do when they're negotiating these clauses to to protect them themselves as well. So, um, I guess you know, Tom and Alex, to you both on this one as M and A lawyers, um, thinking forward. Um, what are the lessons that that in-house counsel or business leaders should take away when negotiating these MAE clauses in order to protect their organizations from future risk? So Blair, I'd say at, at the risk of repeating myself or, or at least saying uh, something similar to what I said before in a slightly different way, I think it's important to be mindful of which jurisdiction's law governs your agreement and then draft accordingly. So for example, if you're a US buyer doing business in Canada or a Canadian buyer doing business in Canada and you're sort of used to the old way of doing things and we're, we're trying to address this new case law and we prefer it to be the way it was before, we might wanna specifically state in the agreement that the ordinary course clause must be interpreted without reference to the MAE clause. Uh, except to the extent that the ordinary course clause specifically is qualified by the MAE clause. I think that's sound advice, Tom, from a Canadian perspective, in light of the uncertainty that um, we're facing with some of the recent case law. I think we expect there'll be a further clarity on this and whether those decisions get appealed and we get um, additional guidance from the court or Frankly, you know, we are in a world where um, there are lots of other events uh, that are not COVID related anymore, whether it's conflict in Europe or supply chain issues or other things that are going on that um, could potentially lead to MAEs. And, and so I suspect we're going to see more, more decisions on this in the upcoming uh, period. But in the meantime, I think from a Canadian perspective, that's certainly sound advice. Um, I haven't actually seen it as much um, in the documents that have come across my desk since this decision has come across, but certainly something that I think should be considered carefully in the context of the transaction you're negotiating. All right. Well, uh, well thank you, um, Alex, Tom, and Chloe for sharing those insights. And uh, my thanks to uh, all of our podcast listeners for, uh, for joining us for this episode. You can stay tuned for future episodes on the Toronto Business Insights podcast series, which you can find on our dentons.com podcast page. Um, there you can access other episodes as well as descriptions for each topic and information on our speakers. Uh, Dentons is a global legal practice providing client services worldwide through its member firms and affiliates. This episode is not designed to provide legal or other advice, and you should not take or refrain from taking action based on its content. Please see dentons.com for legal notices. Thanks very much for joining us on uh, today's podcast.